Morning, everyone. Uh, today, we read Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let, he, uh, let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with vigilance, for from it will flow the springs of life. And Proverbs chapter 15, verse 11 to 15. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. A scuba does not like to reprove. He will not go to the wise. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. But by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Thanks, Roland. I need to do this. There we go. Yeah, so as you may have figured out, from the scripture reading, we are starting a new series today on Proverbs. And today, we're going to start um, by talking about wisdom in the heart. And if you know anything about the book of Proverbs, uh, or even if you know what the word proverb means in English, then you'll know that Proverbs is a collection of short wise statements about how to live properly. And so we're going to be looking at this book in the coming weeks. Today we're starting, if you have any questions about the sermon as we go, you can send questions to Colin in the Zoom chat during the sermon, and he will lead us in a discussion time after the sermon ends. So as we start looking at Proverbs today, I want to take a step back and, and look at maybe ask some basic foundational questions that are going to shape the rest of our time in this book. And they're questions that you may never have thought of in relation to Proverbs before, but they're ones I think we often just assume the answers to these questions. And if we get the answers wrong on these questions, then as we try to live out the teaching of Proverbs and apply that in our lives, we're going to end up really off course and off track. And so what are the questions I'm talking about? Well, there are things like, what is a human being? And how do humans change? Because the book of Proverbs is teaching us how to change, to become more wise, more skillful in our living. So what, how do we change at the most fundamental level? It, Proverbs is written to help us live well. But if we get the answers to these questions wrong, we're never going to fully apply Proverbs in our lives the way that it's meant to be applied. And so today we're going to examine this question, how do we change? 
We're going to look at this question. How, sorry, we're going to look at this question. How do we change? And we're going to look at where change comes from, what the center of change in our lives does, and how change happens. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word and for your concern that we live well. And I pray that you would be speaking to us today through your word, that you would be teaching us what it looks like to live in a way that honors you, and that you would be helping us learn to be people who live with wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, we're going to look at where change comes from. And I have a question for you. But before I ask this question, I'm going to give you a definition of wisdom because that's going to help you hopefully answer my question. So wisdom is practical skill for living in God's world. Practical skill for living in God's world. Now, like I said, Proverbs as a book, it's written to help us live wisely, to help us live the best way possible in this world that God created. And the assumption of the book of Proverbs is that none of us is born with wisdom. Proverbs assumes that all of us have this need from the day that we're born to learn and grow and retrain ourselves so that we can break with that default condition we're born with of being simple or foolish, and we can instead move towards wisdom. Now, my hope would be that everyone here, whether we're Christians or not, would say that throughout the course of our lives, we have taken some sort of steps in this journey away from foolishness and towards wisdom. Everyone else around you might say that's absolutely false. This guy is totally foolish or this girl is totally foolish. But in our understandings of ourselves and the world and how we're best to live in the world, we would say, I've, I've made some steps in the right direction. I know some things about life that are good things to know that I didn't know 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago. We're not fully there yet. We, we haven't mastered this skill of living practically in a great way, but we're farther along the journey than we were the day we were born. Would everyone say we've made some steps in that direction? Hopefully. I think one or two people are saying they have. Hopefully the rest of us have too. Uh, but here's my question. If you think about how we change, how does that process happen? How do we change? Or, or maybe a better way to ask this question, where inside of us as human beings does change originate? Where inside of us as human beings does change originate? So if you think about the moments in your life where you've gone through a change, some positive change that leads you closer to living with wisdom or a negative change, where in you did that change originate? I know this guy who did a whole doctoral program digging into this question and studying this. It's an Australian pastor named Andrew Cade, and I'm going to be drawing on his research a bunch today. But he argues that biblically, human beings can be broken down into a handful of main parts. Now, I'm not going to tell you how many yet, because I don't want to spoil the buildup by telling you in advance when it's going to end. But he says human beings can be broken down into a handful of main parts. And I want to walk us through each of these parts that make up a person, according to the Bible, 
and examine whether any or all of them is where change originates inside of us, okay? So again, think back to a time where we took a step of change, maybe from foolishness to wisdom, maybe the opposite direction, but think about where that change originated. Did it originate in your body? Like you rolled out of bed one morning, you started physically doing something new, something healthy, something positive, some productive habit. You just started doing it and it stuck. Is that how change starts? I, I'm seeing some no's and no, it's not. Living with wisdom obviously involves our bodies. It, it's demonstrated through how we live and how we do actions with skill. But I think we all recognize that's not the starting point. That's more the result of something else that drives us. The body acts because it's responding to something else. But what is that something else? Maybe, what about our minds? Anyone think it's our minds? The mind thinks. The mind justifies our decisions. It convinces us the thing we're about to do is really the best thing to do in this situation. It's able to look at what we've done in the past and analyze what worked and what didn't work in that. Think about whether there's a better way to do things in the future. Having a mind, it allows us to live rationally. Many people throughout history have said, you know, we as human beings need to be driven primarily by our minds. We need to have our actions and our wills informed by our minds so we can live rationally. They've said we need to be driven by our minds so we can live rationally. So is that where your change started on the level of the mind? I'm seeing some more no's. No, because there's still something deeper. Okay, I'm going to give you the next one. Is it our wills? Biblically, the will chooses. If you think about the person who gets out of bed and starts doing some new really healthy habit and just sticks with it, we typically describe that person as having a really strong will, right? Like they, they made a decision, they stuck with it. Before they get out of bed that first morning and each following morning, they must choose to get out of bed and do that new thing. The will chooses what to do. And once the will chooses, the body follows and does what the will has chosen to do. So is the will the driving force behind change? Still seeing some no's. I'm seeing some people who are like, maybe. All right, I'm gonna give you one more option to think about right now. The fourth part of what makes us a human, makes up a human, according to the Bible, is what this pastor labeled the guts, which feel. The guts are the center of our emotions. And I'm sure we all know people who we would look at. And if we looked at them, we would say, you know, that, that person, they're really driven by their emotions. They just act on what they feel all the time. You ever met anyone like that? Someone who's just completely driven by their emotions. Maybe if you're a little bit more self-aware among us, you might be like, yeah, that's me a lot of the time too. Because we all are sometimes, right? We all act on our emotions at times. The guts are what we feel with, according to the Bible. So are the guts that, that feel that the source of our emotions, is that the driving force between, behind how we change? Maybe, maybe we've got some, we've got, I, I didn't see any straight up no's this time, just a few maybes. I, I'm going to tell you the answer is no. 
The guts, they respond to our actions and choices and thoughts. They give us feedback on them that informs our future actions and choices and thoughts, but they themselves by themselves are still not the driving force behind change in our lives. So if none of these four things we've just looked at is the driving force behind change in our lives, where does change come from? Is there another part of who we are, some other part that controls a more foundational function in our lives that powers all these things? Or is the answer actually that none of these four things is the driving force by itself because they somehow all work together simultaneously? I'm seeing some no's on that one. <laughs> or is this just all a trick question set up to give you a big disappointing, well, we don't know, we can't know, I'm sorry. No, I'm not going to do that to you. Don't worry. That's, that's not it. It's one of the first two. It's, so is change in our lives driven by these four things working together simultaneously, or is there something else that drives us? Maybe you can think about it this way. If you look at these four parts of us and what they do, is there anything missing from the list that we do as humans that's important, essential, foundational? These four parts of us, the body, the mind, the will, and the guts, they cover acting, choosing, thinking, feeling. But is there something else that we do that could stand behind these things and drive them and motivate them and inspire them? And if so, what is that thing? What is it that we do as humans that, that guides and drives these things? I'm going to give you the answer. Are you ready for it? The other thing that's so foundational that we do as human beings is we love, we desire, we worship, we boast. And where does this loving and desiring and worshiping and boasting come from? What part, what part of us does that originate in? If you don't know the answer, think about what part of a person does Cupid aim his arrow at if he makes them, wants to make them fall in love? Bang knows it. It's the heart. Yeah, it's our hearts. Biblically, our hearts are the center of change in us. Like, yes, our bodies do what our will chooses to do. Our mind justifies the decision that our wills make. Many people act on their emotions. But as our minds are thinking and our guts are feeling and our bodies are acting and our wills are choosing them, what's guiding them? What's acting as a compass that determines what's true and desirable and good and worth actually pursuing in the first place? It's the loves and the boasts and the desires of our hearts. Everything we do flows out of the loves and desires of our hearts. So if that's the case, then we need to look at what the heart does, because that's a really foundational question. Now, I don't know the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about the heart. If you're more scientifically minded, you might think of a muscle that pumps blood through the body. If you have small kids and they're in the Disney phase of their childhood, or if you or someone you love works at Disney, you may think of finding true love or following your heart, just like Disney always tells you to do. But my guess would be, I could be wrong. My guess would be for most of us in our modern disenchanted world, most of us don't hear the word heart and think, ah, control center for everything I am and everything I do. But biblically, that's exactly what the heart is, the control center for everything we are and everything we do. The Hebrew word for heart 
actually appears 97 times in the book of Proverbs. If you exclude conjunctions and prepositions, words like and, to, for, heart is the Hebrew word that appears more times than any other word in the entire book of Proverbs. In the ESV English translation, you're only actually going to see heart about 79 times. And a big part of that reason that it appears less times in English than in Hebrew is because the Hebrew word for heart is so far reaching and applies to so many different parts of our lives that when we translate it into English, it often gets translated as something other than heart. So in addition to being translated as heart, it gets translated several times as sense, as in the fool lacks sense. The sense right there is, is actually the Hebrew word for heart. And every time, at least in the ESV, this is true, every single time the word mind appears in the book of Proverbs, it's actually the Hebrew word for heart that's being translated right there. So the heart is central. If you look at what the heart is or does in the book of Proverbs, it's involved in everything. I actually sat down this week and I looked through every single time the Hebrew word for heart appears in Proverbs. And I looked at when it appears, what does it do? What is it? And I made a list of everything the heart is and does in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to go through it really quickly right now. I may not go through it all because it's really long. I'm going to go through it quickly. If you want me to send you this list so you can look through it more in depth on your own time, I'm happy to do that. But right now, I'm just going to go through it quickly because check out everything the heart can be or do according to Proverbs. According to Proverbs, the heart can incline to understanding. The heart can be filled with wisdom. The heart can keep commandments. The heart can be written on. The heart can trust. The heart can hold fast to words. The heart can be kept or guarded. The heart can despise. The heart can devise evil. The heart can be lacking. The heart can be wily. It can turn aside. It can learn. It can be wise. It can be worth a little. It can be crooked or twisted. It can proclaim folly. The heart can be anxious. The heart can be sick. The heart can know its own bitterness. The heart can ache and backslide and be tranquil. It can have wisdom rest open in it. We're not even halfway through the book. The heart can do so much stuff. I'm going to skip the rest of the list because the heart is involved in everything in the book of Proverbs. And I know that's a really rapid rundown. Again, if you want the list, let me know. I'm happy to send it to you. I, I hope though you get the picture. The heart is central to everything we are, everything we do. It's involved in all of our loves and desires and boasts and worship that drive all of our actions and thoughts. Here's the main thing I want you to get a feel for. Again, the heart, it's intricately involved in every part of who we are and what we do it drives every other part of our lives. One theologian put it this way, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Everything we choose to do with our will, everything we justify with our minds, we only choose and justify those things because it lines up with what our hearts desire and love. The guy I know who did his doctorate on this, he said, this quote is good, but incomplete because it doesn't include the body or the guts. So he expands it. He says, what the heart desires the will chooses, the mind justifies, the body does, and the guts feel good about. So the heart and its loves and its desires, it's a driving force between everything we think, everything we choose, everything we feel, everything we do. And that's why in our scripture reading today, we had that command 
given to us from Proverbs in Proverbs 4.23, to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the streams of life. Because according to the Bible's picture of what a person is, the heart's the center. If you keep your heart properly, everything else in your life is going to fall into place behind it. But if you don't, if your heart is twisted or hardened or evil, then you as a person are going to be twisted or hardened or evil. This is also why Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 from our reading today says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Because if you're trusting the Lord with your heart, you're going to trust him with your thoughts and your actions and your choices and your feelings. If your heart is in proper order, everything else falls into place. And if it's not, then no matter how hard you try to improve the other areas of your life, they're always going to drift off in the direction that the desires of your heart pull them. So that's great in theory that our heart is the driving force, the center, the, the thing that guides us in everything we do. But on a practical basis, what does this look like in someone's life? So hypothetically, say there's a guy who struggles with a porn addiction. What's happening here? Is his problem primarily one of behavior? No, I mean, how many parents of teenage boys have fallen into tra the trap of thinking that their son's porn addiction is primarily a behavior problem? No, porn is a problem of desire, first and foremost. If the problem with porn was primarily a behavior problem, things like web blockers and consequences for misbehavior would be able to fix the addiction. But if you know someone, or if you yourself have ever struggled with a porn addiction, you know the problems deeper than that. You can put the blocker software on the computer that keeps you from being able to access the pornographic websites, but that software can't stop you from imagining what the woman you walk past on the street would look like naked. Why not? Because your problem isn't first and foremost with your behavior and what you're doing. It's first and foremost with what you're desiring and a web blocker can't change your desires. And the more we understand this, that our hearts drive everything we think and feel and choose and, and do, it impacts every part of our lives. Like what causes someone to be a lazy husband who doesn't contribute at home? At the deepest, most fundamental level is that he loves his comfort more than he loves his wife. And that's why nagging him about his laziness won't make him more helpful around the house because nagging doesn't change what he loves. That, this is also why making stricter rules against social unrest doesn't bring social harmony to a rioting city. Like it may get rioters off the streets, but new laws aimed at controlling people's behavior can never change hearts. Literally every area of our lives is guided and dictated by our hearts. But you know what? That means we have a problem. Because Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 says, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Now, if you're hanging on the edge of your seat, like, who is it, Eric? Come on, tell me, tell me, tell me. The answer is no one. The question's rhetorical. No one can say this. No one can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. We're all a mess. And if you don't buy that that's rhetorical, you're like, Eric, I think you're making that up. Check out what Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 has to say about our hearts. Jeremiah 20, uh, 17, verse 9 says, the heart 
is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible is clear that our hearts have a problem. They're deceitful. They're sick. They lead us astray. I mean, even if you don't believe the Bible for itself and you think the Bible's out of date, just think about your own life experience and you'll see this is true. Like how many times in your life have you done something? And you're like, I knew before I did it that it was a bad choice. Not just because it was like morally wrong, because it would be counterproductive or it would hurt me and the people I cared about. But no matter how bad of a choice you knew it was, you just couldn't help yourself from doing it. Whether it's something like dating someone who's no good for you and it's going to leave you hurt and heartbroken, whether it's forming an addiction that impacts your behavior or your actions, whether it's lashing out in anger against someone when you knew it wasn't going to do anything or something else. You knew before you did these things that they were bad decisions that were going to end in disaster. You knew they would lead to pain. Part of you tried to talk yourself out of doing them and you couldn't help yourself. Why not? Because these verses in Proverbs and Jeremiah, they're as true of you as they are of everyone. Your heart is deceitful. It is sick. You, just like I, cannot say I have made my heart pure. At the core of your being, you need deep transformation to become the person you know you're supposed to be. And it's not just you, it's all of us, all of us to become the people that we're supposed to be. We need deep transformation in our hearts. So how does that happen? How does change happen in our hearts? So just to recap, based on what we've seen so far, the heart is the driving force, motivating everything we think, feel, choose, and do, which means any sin in our lives, any part of us that resists God and his ways and seeks our own ways instead, it's coming from our hearts and true and proper worship, true and proper love for others, true, wise, and skillful living. All of these things flow out of our hearts also, but all of us are born with hearts that don't function like they're supposed to. They're deceitful. They're sick. They lead us astray. And so we need to get from where we are when we're born with these deceitful and sick hearts that lead us astray to a place of love and worship and skillful living. And how do we bridge that gap? How do we make that transition? Well, Proverbs chapter three, verse five tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So it seems that the key is to turn our dependence, our love, our desire, our trust off of ourselves and onto God. And the promise of Proverbs 3, verse 6, is that if we do that, God will make our paths straight. So that's easy, right? Just trust in God. He'll fix all our issues. We're good, right? But that's also the problem, isn't it? Like our deep problem, it's not just the problem of understanding, like, oh, now you know what to do, so go do it. It's, most, it's not most fundamentally a, a problem of will or choice that we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder. No, it's our problem most fundamentally is a problem of our desires and our loves. And reading a commandment doesn't change what we love. That's just the reality of being human. Reading a commandment doesn't change what we love. Actually, Paul tells us in Romans that he would not have known what it was to sin, except for that he heard God's commandments. And when he heard God's commandments saying, don't do these things, he all of a sudden wanted to do them. 
It's not that hearing a commandment changes our hearts that we now love God. Hearing the commandment actually just makes us say, I know even better than God how to live my life. We need something more than mere commands to change us into the people we are meant to be. So what is that thing that we need? Well, the guy I know who did his doctorate on this had this to say on the matter. One final observation is needed in relation to the Old Testament usage of the heart. Namely, that very little is said about how a heart changes. That's encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> Other than that it is very difficult. Therefore, changing our hearts is something that is accomplished by the sovereign work and power of God. Very little is said about how a heart changes other than that, than that it is very difficult and therefore is something that is accomplished by the sovereign work and power of God. For our hearts to change, we need God to do a miracle in us. That's the huge message of the entire Bible, actually. For us to be the people we're supposed to be, we need God to do a miracle and transform us. There is no magic formula, three steps to becoming who you were always meant to be, other than you need God to do a miracle for you. Which, again, on one hand, that's how Christianity works from start to finish. The whole message of the Bible and of Christianity is that we are sinners, which means we've pushed God away. We've told him, I don't want you to be God. I want to be my own God instead because I know better than you how life works best. And because of our sin, we are spiritually dead, the Bible says. We're totally incapable of rescuing ourselves from the consequences we deserve. But God comes in when we are at our worst, when we are incapable of rescuing ourselves. And he saves us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but just because he loves us. Which, as a side note, if you want to have the love and desires of your hearts reshaped, there is nothing more powerful than reflecting on the love of God demonstrated for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But I want us to see here, for salvation, which is the ultimate heart transformation possible, we're completely dependent on God stepping in and doing a miracle for us that we can't do for ourselves. And for sanctification, that's the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus each day after we become Christians. We're also completely dependent on God stepping in and doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Which is a hard thing to hear, isn't it? I don't think anyone likes being in a place where we're told we're absolutely incapable of doing by ourselves what we need to do. But that's exactly where we find ourselves here. But there's good news. That God often works through totally natural means to accomplish supernatural miracles. See, you and I don't have the ability to transform the loves and desires of our hearts through our own efforts. We just can't do it. It's, it's an impossibility. But we do have the opportunity each day to put our hearts in a place where they're prepared to be receptive when God sends this miracle. So when God does the miracle that we can't do, our hearts are ready to receive it. So maybe you can think of it this way. Tonight, here, it's nighttime. Uh, and we just had a, a barbecue for dinner. We had a cookout on the grill. We used a charcoal grill. And my father-in-law used 
the charcoal that's, that's doused in lighter fluid. So it's supposed to catch really nice and well. But he loaded the grill up with charcoal and he lit a match and he dropped it in there and the match didn't catch properly because I guess maybe the charcoal was a little bit dried out or something. And the match just burned up and went away. The charcoal was all there ready to burn up, but it just went away. So you know what my father-in-law did? He went inside and he grabbed some lighter fluid and he came back outside and he just squeezed that lighter fluid all over the charcoal. And then he lit another match and he dropped the match into the now doubly soaked charcoal that was doused with tons of lighter fluid. And you know what happened? The second the match hit the charcoal, boom, it was a huge fire. It didn't actually explode, but it just shot up in flames right away. The, the spark or match or lighter, whatever the thing is that starts the fire in this analogy, that's a miracle from God. We cannot create that spark that starts the fire in our hearts. But what we can do is we can get our hearts ready so that when the match comes, they're ready to go. We can do things that are the spirit, spiritual equivalent of dousing our hearts with lighter fluid so that when God sends his fire, we're ready to go. And so what does it look like to do that? A big part of it is, is just spending time intentionally putting ourselves in places where we're able to see the beauty of Jesus. Remember, our hearts draw us towards what we believe is beautiful and lovely. Whatever it is we desire, that's what our hearts lead all of us towards. So if we spend all our free time watching Netflix or playing video games, or watching porn, what image is being formed in our minds of what's good and beautiful and lovely and desirable? If we never have free time because we're so consumed with our work, trying to be more productive and more financially successful, what image is being formed in our hearts of what's good and beautiful and lovely and desirable? I'll give you a hint. It's not a life of knowing and loving God. The picture of the good and beautiful and lovely life that's formed in our hearts in these scenarios is not the life spent trusting in God rather than leaning on our own understanding. But when we intentionally focus on Jesus and his beauty, when we take time each day to do things like read our Bibles and pray, to talk with other Christians about how amazing God is, when we go to church and worship alongside other Christians, when we use our free time to reflect and meditate on how good and generous God is to us, what we're doing is we're just squeezing more lighter fluid onto our hearts. So when that spark comes, they're ready for it. So when God does that miracle, we're ready for what he's going to do in us. Also, when we give our money and time and resources to the work God's doing in the world, we're getting our hearts in a posture so they can be receptive to God's work. Did you know Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you ever make that connection before? The heart, it's the control center of who we are, where our treasure is, our heart's going to follow it. He says, if we want our hearts to love and desire God, one of the most powerful things we can do is to give our treasures, our time, our skills, our money, our resources to what God is doing in this world. And again, it's not that that somehow puts God in our debt or makes God owe us, 
It's simply a way of preparing ourselves so that when God sends that spark into our hearts, we're ready for it. Doing these things, it doesn't make God owe us. It prepares us so that when God does that miracle, we're ready to receive it. Church Proverbs, it teaches us how to be the people God wants us to be, to be people who live wisely and have practical skills for living. But living this way, it doesn't start with just buckling down and gritting our teeth and deciding to just do it. No, true transformation to the right way of living begins with us being people who have renovated hearts. It requires us to, to undergo a transformation in what we love and what we desire and what we worship so that we're more aligned to God's perspective of the world each day than we were the day before. And yes, that transformation, it's completely dependent on God stepping in and doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, but he is a God who does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And he's given us tools and resources to help prepare ourselves so when he does do that miracle, our hearts are ready to receive it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for speaking to us and teaching us about who you have made us to be and how you've made us to function. And I pray that you would be working in us, giving us hearts that love and long for and desire and worship and trust you. Pray that you would teach us to trust in you with all our hearts so that the rest of us can follow along in that trust of you as well. God, teach us to love you, teach us to love one another and trust you in Jesus' name, amen. If anyone has any questions about today's sermon, you can go ahead and send your questions in Zoom chat to Colin, and he will uh, lead a Q&A time in about 30 seconds. Colin, if you have any questions, you can just go ahead and start. If you're still waiting okay. for them, that's fine. Still waiting for them to come in. Um, a question I had is, um, is God's makeup similar to ours? Does, does God have a heart and a will and a gut? What do you... What do you Sorry, my internet connection just froze for a second. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, so that's a good question. I have not done much research on that. Um, <laughs> I know the Bible talks a lot about um, God loving. Um, I mean, Jesus also says God is spirit. So um, like on one level, it's not identical. Um, but if you yeah. look through the Bible... Um, God acts, God makes choices, God loves, God experiences emotions. And you can talk and debate about whether the emotions are equivalent to ours, or if it's some way of phrasing things in a way that we can understand. But, um, each of these things, I think God is described as, as doing on some level, but it may not be identical to the way that we do them. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I, I suspect that that's that's um, that's right. I think 
Um, or I'll, there's no questions coming in. I, I had one sent to me. I'll forward it to you. Okay. Okay. All right. So this question is, um, you mentioned that our heart is made up of the body, the mind, the will, the guts. So when our heart feels like it, um, but one of the other four doesn't feel right, does it mean that we are about to do or thinking about doing something that is not right? Okay, so uh, that's, a, that's a deep question. Um, so, <laughs> so first, uh, let me just clarify. The heart is not sort of a composite made up of the mind, will, guts, body. The heart is a separate thing, the, the fifth item on the list that guides all of those things. Um, and so I think, um, you know, you think about that, that quote that I had up there, the, what the, what the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies, and then the body does and the guts feel good about, um, I think we've all experienced times in our lives where we've done something and then felt really bad about it afterwards. Right. Or, or we've been torn about something like, I, I really want to do this, but part of me doesn't want to do this. And I can't, I'm going back and forth. Um, a lot of times what's happening there is, is actually conflicting desires. Um, so maybe I have a desire to have people like me, but also a desire to be respected. And I feel like someone disrespected me. So I want to say something, but then I also realize that that could make a scene and make people think less of me. And so I'm, I'm going back and forth with these competing desires trying to figure out which one do I want more? Which one do I desire more? Which one's more lovely to me? Um, and whichever one I choose, I'm going to be violating the other one, right? I'm going to either sacrifice my desire to be respected in order to get people to like me, or I'm going to sacrifice my desire for people to like me in order to try and get that respect. Uh, but whichever one gets violated in that choice, we're going to feel not right about that part of it. Um, and so I think it's, it's often what's going on there when we're thinking about doing something, but then part of us is like, I don't feel good about that. I don't feel right about that. Is that reality of conflicting desires, conflicting loves in our hearts that are competing with one another. Okay. Thanks. Um, there's another one here about, Oh, uh, sorry. Can I just add yeah. one more thing there? I think yeah. a, a lot of times we may not be aware of that reality. Um, but things like our emotions, like we end up feeling really stressed and anxious about it or our bodies. We just feel like muscles feeling really tense as that happens. Those are often indicators that point to that reality of the conflicting desires. Um, so it's not that the, the body or the emotions or whatever are usurping the heart's place, but they're actually sort of maybe acting as like x-rays don't show hearts, but but some sort of like diagnostic test that show us something, some reality in our hearts that we weren't even aware of before, but giving us that glimpse to be able to see that. Okay. All right. Um, there's another question here about uh, God. Well, using the example of when uh, Pharaoh's heart was changed by God mm. um, to enable his will to be done. So, do you think that God does change our hearts and in certain situations nowadays? Um, 
do I think that, I mean, I think biblically salvation is God doing a miracle and changing our hearts. Um, is the question, does God change our hearts full stop or does God change our hearts by hardening them like he did with Pharaoh's? Cause I think that's wow. sort of two different questions. Oh, I froze again. Sorry. I froze yeah, again. What did you say? That's all right. Um, Oh, the question was just when, when does God change one's heart? Mm. And the example was God yeah. changed Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. I mean, I think the other big thing to be aware of with Pharaoh is several times it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Several times it also talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Um, and so in that situation, God didn't sort of step in and force Pharaoh to go against his against his character and do something he never wanted to do in the first place. God sometimes maybe nudged Pharaoh to keep doing what he had been doing. Um, but he didn't take Pharaoh who is some great upstanding guy and be like, all right, I'm just going to make a mess of you now. Um, so I think, I think if, if we're concerned about God, like coming in and doing to us what he did to Pharaoh, um, I think that's a, a good reminder. Um, but, but yeah, God absolutely changes hearts because every time someone becomes a Christian, that's God changing their heart. 